Hey, this is Viewpoints. Todd Vander Hayden here with you. First weekend of May. Great to have you along for the ride. Smart radio, fun radio to get you thinking and talking. Let's get to the show now. It's the biggest crisis probably to face Justin Trudeau's government 18 months since they first won power. Certainly the biggest when it comes to Trudeau's team of top-line ministers. Canada's defense minister, Harjit Sajjan, a military vet, former cop with the Vancouver Police Department, lied about his involvement in the war in Afghanistan, exaggerated the nature of that role. During an international trip, he claimed in a speech to an audience that he was the architect of a key operation fighting against the Taliban terrorists in Afghanistan back in 2006. Well, Sajjan was in the battle, but he was not the architect, not at all. He has since apologized over and over again. The revelation, though, that a Canadian defense minister made false claims in public, effectively padding his own resume to make himself look better, well... You won't be surprised to know it's created a firestorm and all week hammered in the House of Commons by the Conservatives and the New Democrats who say he needs to resign immediately, that he's embarrassed himself, the country, the military, and lost all credibility. And some members of the military agree privately, saying he has overstepped in one of the worst possible ways. To air is human, of course, but is this too much? And if Sajjan holds on, will he be a weakened minister or will Trudeau quietly shuffle him out in the next couple of months. We'll see. But I want to go to my first guest on the show this weekend, Joe Warmington. He is a well-known and popular columnist with the Toronto Sun. Joe, what do you think Sajjan should do? My viewpoint ranges uh, from moment to moment. I mean, when I first heard about it, I felt that, you know, I felt really bad for him. And uh, I thought that, you know, it must be some sort of misunderstanding. He used the wrong word, this kind of thing. And, you know, I was really surprised that, that he came out and apologized and kind of admitted the whole mea culpa that he wasn't the architect. When all he really had to say was, you know, I used the wrong word, architect, you know. Heck, I mean, I know I wasn't the, the full architect, and here's what I really meant. And then it's over. Instead, you know, I think that he and his team kind of panicked politically. He's not really political, you know, savvy. He's a guy that was a cop and a soldier. So then it leads you back to why did he do this? And that's really where we're at now, isn't it? You know, the question is not that he's sorry or it was a mistake. We all know that those things are true. But why did he do it? It'd be like being on the Team Canada. It's worse than this, but being on the Team Canada in 2010 in the Olympics and saying that, you know, you're one of the members of the team, said so I scored the winning goal. Well, everyone knows Sidney Crosby scored the winning goal. It, and yet you're on the team with Sidney Crosby, so that's good enough for everybody. Why would you, you know, when you serve there, and everyone knows he was there, he's a reasonably uh, popular, a very popular figure in the government. There was no need for for this. So the, the question is the psyche of the man. What happened there? And uh, and so when I, the reason I say all that is I come to something that no one's talking about, and I wonder, is it possible that he could have PTSD? I mean, again, I'm not throwing out a diagnosis, but I, you know, I've been to Afghanistan myself, and I saw lots and lots of men and women there. I've certainly been on the highway of heroes a lot, and these things do happen. And so, you know, I would throw that out as a possibility to to question. You know, why did he do this? I mean, it can't, it can't just be for his hubris or to, you know, to have people think that he's bigger than he is. He's already the minister, so I guess I'm kind of I'm taking a long time to answer it, but. I'm kind of mixed on it all the time. Sometimes I think, yeah, he's got to go, and other times I think, well, wait a minute. 
it's just a bad, you know, bad situation, then maybe we can get past it. Joe Warmington is my guest. He's a well-known, popular columnist with the Toronto Sun, and we're talking about this firestorm involving Canada's Defence Minister, Harjit Sajjan, who lied about the extent of his involvement in a military operation in Afghanistan back in 2006. You raise a great point, Joe, this notion of why would he do it, and even, you know, why take the risk in a public speech that, you know, nowadays everybody's filming and taping, and, you know, and, and he says this overseas, and there he is representing Canada, and so the optics are, are really, really bad. I know that you know a lot of vets out there are you hearing from any of them I mean, what are they saying to you about this do they find it uncomfortable can they look past it can they move on or is this going to stick with them veterans that are no longer serving aren't going to get past it easily he's going to have to look them all in the eye he's going to have to go out and shake all their hands and and you know i think they're very very compassionate people um some of them are unforgiving about things like medals and stolen valor i don't know if this falls into the category of that though I'm not sure. I mean, there's still some more questions they have, which I'd like to, to bring out. But to your point, the, the ones in the military are what matter in terms of you know him moving forward. And they're not going to say too much. I mean, from General Vance on down, who's in the middle of this because he used his name. He name-dropped General Vance in all of this. And so you know, they're not going to say anything, and they're going to move on. I think that this is one of those ones that maybe it would be best for the country that we did move on from it. And, you know, again, I've been very, very critical and scathing about what he did. I haven't held back. But he is a man. He's a human being. Uh, and, you know, he made, I don't think it was a mistake. I think it was a lie. And the question, until I hear or have some understanding of why he did this, and, you know, that could be a range of that he shouldn't be in that job because of why he did it, to an explanation of, you know, why he did it, and we can move on from it. Uh, there are bigger things going on than this, and there are bigger things than the minister, and we can't have this department bogged down forever on something like this, and we can't also be sitting there in glass houses throwing stones, because everybody's exaggerated a little bit. Joe Warmington is my guest, popular columnist with the Toronto Sun. We're talking about this crisis involving Canada's Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan under fire for lying about his involvement in a battle. You raise some great points. Number one, a lot of people pad their resume. Although when it comes to military battles, that is so dangerous and so tricky. There was a fundraiser, Joe, and you know this, this past week to the stand and back, and the minister was supposed to attend. It would have been an opportunity for him to look some vets in the eye, as you were saying earlier, and apologize and try to explain why he did what he did, and he canceled at the last minute. I'm curious whether you think that's an example of sort of the mishandling of this. Yes, and I, you know, again, he takes all the blame for all of this, but having said that, what's happening here is the political spin doctors around him, and, you know, and that's also in the PMO, who are trying to stage manage this in a bigger picture. Well, they know they've got, they've got tough critics out there and enemies, political enemies, etc. But you're right. You can't say, look, I've owed it, I'm sorry, uh, you know, my bad, and yet not deal with it, and then just say, like, you know, I've dealt with it, I'm not going to answer it. The Prime Minister going in the House of Commons, repeating the same thing over and over. Look, you don't work for yourselves. You work for us. And, you know, a lot of us in the media, we get a bad rap, too, because we have a job to do. You do. I mean, you're tough on people. doesn't mean you hate them. I don't hate any of these people. I mean, you, you criticize them, but you still like them as people. And, of course, I'm a little old school because I go back so long in the business. But, you know, if he's not going to show up and do his part by going, you know, he's not there for himself. He's there for those veterans and, and also for those uh, you know, current members that are serving in very dangerous uh, missions that they're training for. And, you know, we lost a guy, 
uh, Robert uh, Dinovitz from down in Kitchener Way, uh, for, you know, he was CFP Petawawa, and he was uh, out in Wainwright in Alberta. And, you know, he was killed. He did two Afghanistan tours. They never gave him a highway hero kind of uh, trip home, and he deserved it. He earned it. And so, yes, uh, if the minister is not going to go to stuff, now there's one coming up on May 18th in Kingston, which you know, he is the, the top, you know, the, co- the top person at Royal Military College in that role. Jason Kenney also had that, that distinction and others before him, including uh, Minister McKay. And so he has to be at that. If he's not there, then he already has resigned. Joe, great to have you on the program this weekend with your viewpoints. Thanks so much for taking time for us. Thanks for having me. Obviously, we have to remember we're all human, and even if he does have to go as the minister, he's elected, and he's uh, the MP for Mississauga, or sorry, for Vancouver South. I'm in Mississauga South, as you see. Vancouver South. And uh, you know what? Uh, he still deserves the respect there. He just may not be able to carry on in that role. But hopefully he, uh, you know, stops listening to the political people and go from the heart and be honest about what did happen and give it to Canadians and then let the chips fall where they may. Joe Warmington, columnist with the Toronto Sun. Check it out, torontosun.com. You're listening to Viewpoints, the podcast on iTunes, smart radio covering top stories of the week, plus fun radio to get you talking. You'll find it all right here. Now, let's get back to the show. U.S. President Donald Trump under fire again this past week, this time for palling around with dictators and authoritarian strongmen, whether we're talking about the leader of the Philippines, who has an awful record on human rights, or the head of Egypt, who's a former military man, has cracked down on the free press and opposition, the leader of Turkey, for example, or, of course, Vladimir Putin of Russia, quasi-dictator in his own right, Xi Jinping of China, and even Donald Trump suggesting that he would be, quote, honored to meet with the dictator of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. Now, of course, U.S. presidents have to deal with lots of unsavory characters. Not everybody is a friend of the United States. In fact, many are not. And so a president sitting in the Oval Office has got to look at the bigger picture here. Real politic, you might call it. You've got to deal with some of these people, so you might as well be honest about it. But has Donald Trump gone too far when it comes to this issue? I want to bring in my guest, Stefan Schmidt. He's known as Dr. Politics. He's a U.S. political analyst. He's joining us today from Ames, Iowa. What do you think about this? Well, Todd, it's a, it's a fine line to walk, isn't it? Because you do have to open channels to, you know, everybody. You can, if you only talk to really democratically elected gover- governments that have good human rights records, you'd have five countries that you could deal with. But the question, you know, I mean, you know, the world is not a place of a lot of really great regimes. But you have to, you know, use a little bit of finesse and make sure that you're not actually providing some of these uh, really kind of bad governments with a public relations uh, benefit by doing this so publicly. And I think that's the problem with the way Trump has done it. So in other words, he's trying to take the spotlight. He's trying to be sort of uh, on the front edge of this, take up all the oxygen in the room. Well, that's right. And and, and as we know, uh, President Trump speaks first and thinks second, or tweets first and thinks second. And so uh, in, in these particular cases, it almost seems as though he ignored his Secretary of State, who is a pretty smart guy, 
um, his foreign policy advisory team and others and just simply um, came out with with these statements. Uh, normally, presidents actually reflect you know, a kind of a consensus of the team. Um, President Trump doesn't do that, and so I think that's why, uh, you know, he has come out in ways that, that seem uh, strange and in, in some instances maybe counterproductive. Oftentimes, this kind of diplomacy does happen, as you're saying, quietly behind the scenes. It's known as back channels. So whether it's the United States dealing with Iran or whatever country it might be, it's handled at a very low level. Uh, And now you have Trump saying this. Do you think, Stefan, that it undermines the reputation of the United States for him to be so public about it and to sort of throw this stuff out willy-nilly? Well, let me, let me, (laughs) Todd, let me clarify what's going on here. We have President Trump who zigs and zags and is in many ways a, a completely unusual and, un, and non-political and impolitic kind of a leader. On the other hand, we have a, a, an establishment of domestic and foreign policy advisors who are actually fairly mainstream. And so what's happened is that there are two different uh, communications that go out on almost every issue. One of them is President Trump, and the second is then the follow-up by the actual negotiators, the, the State Department, the Defense Department, and others. And so it, it certainly doesn't help the United States to have a leader uh, who essentially is very controversial. Let's let's say that at a minimum. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, there are jet planes flying in the air every day with the establishment people going to try uh, and smooth over things, explain things, and uh, in some ways backpedal on it. Um, we, we will see, won't we? It's, it's only 100 days plus uh, since President Trump took over. We'll see what the long-term effect of all this is. It's funny because one of the things I keep hearing is whenever we're discussing Donald Trump, people say we've never seen this before. And it seems like those uh, words, never seen this before, come up over and over again and perhaps are the mantra of his presidency because he's doing so many things we have never seen before. And, of course, his supporters, Stefan, as you know, they like that. That's why they elected the guy to do stuff that we'd never seen before. Stefan Schmidt is my guest on the line in Ames, Iowa. He's a U.S. analyst. And we're talking about Donald Trump palling around with dictators or authoritarian strongmen, or at least that's the criticism, what he has said. One other thing that I want to get your read on is I remember this interview that Donald Trump did with the media not that long ago, and they were asking about Russia, and they said, you know, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, this guy's a killer, he's a thug. And Trump responded by saying, what, you think we don't do bad things as well in the U.S.? And I'm paraphrasing, but there seemed to be this kind of remarkable honesty and authenticity about him where he was like, look, the U.S. does bad things too. I mean, let's stop being so naive and idealistic and, you know, thinking that, you know, we're perfect and holier than thou. Yeah, pretty unusual, isn't it? I mean, most governments and most leaders will certainly not admit to the fact that uh, they may be out there uh, doing sneaky things and things that, um, you know, may cause people harm. So that part of it is, in a way, sort of refreshing. But I, it also shows you the the lack of experience that uh, that Trump has, because those words have consequences, and when you say those kinds of things, you can be absolutely certain that Vladimir Putin put that out, uh, you know, on the speakers in the Kremlin and all over the, the Russia, uh, saying, you see, we're just like the United States. And so you have to be very careful. I, uh, myself, you know, I, I prefer 
of policy to be done with a little bit of reflection and things that are publicly important and necessary uh, ought to be done publicly. For example, the, the President Trump meeting with the Prime Minister of Australia was a, you know, I think a, a, a good thing because it basically reestablished that that long-term relationship. Uh, also, the same thing with the Prime Minister of, of Canada, and the, those are good things. Um, and in some cases, those six problems that were caused earlier when President Trump in a phone conversation with the Prime Minister of Australia was apparently not so polite. So it, it, is, a, it is a wild ride like a, a huge amusement park, Todd, to have President Trump be the President of the United States. There's something else, too, that happened this week. Uh, it seemed like Donald Trump, Stefan, was sort of borderline praising uh, the dictator of North Korea. And he said, you know, this guy, he was in his late 20s and his father dies. All of a sudden, he's in charge of this country. Some of his relatives were trying to grab power. There was this power struggle and he managed to survive, you know, and credit is due for that. But we're talking about this brutal dictator who runs North Korea like a police state, had his own uncle executed using an anti-aircraft gun. And I'm just curious sort of whether Trump is aware of that stuff when he says things like that. Well, I think anti-aircraft guns obviously work very well in public executions. You know, they don't leave much residue. Um, but no, you know, that is really tough. Now, I've heard several people who are very smart people and whom I respect saying nothing has worked with North Korea. The more sanctions we have put on them, every president, you know, for the last three presidents has tried to deal with this, and none of that has worked. So maybe we need a different strategy. Maybe we ought to start talking to the North Koreans. But this is not the way to do it, right? I mean, the way to do it is, again, as you said, correctly, Todd, back-channeling through China, uh, make sure that we have some contacts in North Korea, and discreetly try to talk to them and say to them what the advantage to North Korea would be in toning it down and maybe beginning to have a, a, a real relationship with the U.S. I mean, I, I, I think that you know, might be a good thing to try. Um, but the way that he did it, uh, it was essentially kind of endorsing the leader of North Korea, which, you know, very few people, including the you know, president of China, uh, have not done. Stefan Schmidt, my guest in Ames, Iowa. Dr. Politics is his nickname. He knows U.S. politics backwards and forwards. There's also this madman theory, which Richard Nixon began, which is the notion, Stefan, and you're familiar with it, that you yeah. try to act even crazier than your opponent, more of a madman than your opponent. Richard Nixon did it with Vietnam back in the late 1960s, early 1970s. You know, I'm willing to do anything to win this war, maybe even deploy nuclear weapons against North Vietnam. And I wonder whether that's at play here with the Trump administration, where Donald Trump knows he is unpredictable and he relishes that fact. And it's a bit of an ace up his sleeve where he can act like a crazy person and who knows his adversaries north korea for example might believe it well that it certainly uh, has been discussed and analyzed and the fact that he is getting the attention of a lot of different governments and leaders around the world because you can hardly ignore it. And Donald Trump is a businessman, and as you know, he's written all these books, and The Art of the Deal, you know, his advice is always up the ante. You know, put something out there that is outrageous, you know, that, that your adversary in the negotiation can't possibly accept. 
Because if you lowball your your position, then you're starting from a point of weakness. But you know, if you're putting out something there from which you're willing to negotiate down a little bit, uh, you're likely to get more or less what you wanted. And it's intriguing, and we'll have to see if if he actually is self-consciously doing this, or if that's just his style. You know, his personal style of of how he in, interacts with with people and 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 how he deals with things. Stephen Schmidt joining us from Ames, Iowa, Dr. Politics himself. This is Viewpoints, great guests and great conversations. From politics to pop culture, from technology to geek culture, we do smart radio and fun radio right here. Tune in every week to the iTunes podcast for the best segments from our nationally syndicated weekend radio show. You are listening to Viewpoints. Todd Vander Hayden here with you. First weekend of May. Great to have you along for the ride. Smart and fun radio to get you thinking and talking. That's what we do each and every weekend. All right, let's move on. Sad state of affairs for a disgraced senator, Don Meredith. Don Meredith is in his early 50s. He had a sexual relationship with a teenage girl who was under 18 at the time. He has admitted it. He has apologized for it, but he has been condemned by the Canadian Senate's own ethics committee. They say he has damaged the Senate's image, the integrity of it. It is inappropriate behavior that is unacceptable for a man who is being paid a very generous salary, by the way, with a lot of perks by Canadian taxpayers. How generous? Well, over $125,000 a year generous. The Senate has to decide his fate in the coming weeks, and the recommendation on the table is full expulsion. That, by the way, has never happened before in Canadian history. A senator has never been pushed out of the Senate. Meredith, by the way, in a twist, is a Pentecostal minister from the Toronto area, a leader in the city's black community, or at least he was, until this. He has refused to resign. He was nominated to the Senate more than six years ago by conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Meredith has been a big family values guy, and now this sex scandal. So how does it play out? Seems like the calculus could change for Don Meredith. A sordid tale that makes the Senate look bad once again after years of stories of senators behaving badly. Let's go to Victoria, B.C. Political analyst Michael Gagan is my guest on this. Michael, what's your viewpoint? Well, as you said uh, in that excellent introduction, uh, we have a situation that is unprecedented, and we have a Senate committee that has recommended uh, his expulsion, and I think that actually speaks well in terms of the future of the Senate, in terms of, uh, I think they're recognizing just how little goodwill they have left with the uh, Canadian public, and so that they need to get their house in order and make sure that uh, all of their members, regardless of how they're appointed and who they're appointed by, are, are meeting some basic uh, you know, codes of conduct and decency uh, in our society. Why has Senator Meredith not resigned already, Michael? Well, you know, I, I, I think there's a number of reasons why we could speculate, but, you know, he's, he's you know, hubris, uh, being brazen, and, you know, hey, let me just profoundly apologize, profusely apologize, and then, and then continue on with, you know, collecting, as you pointed out, a fairly generous salary, uh, uh, for an appointment that uh, extends well into your, you know, elderly centrum years. Uh, so I, I suspect it's a thing where he doesn't want to give up that kind of a lucrative gig. Now, he has not broken any laws, so there are those who would say, well, why should he step down? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we're talking about moral failing, a, a failure of character here. I'm a, I'm a 51-year-old father of a 16-year-old daughter. It certainly does not pass the smell test 
for a middle-aged man uh, to be ha- to be carrying on with a teenage girl, particularly when you're in a position of power. And in his case, both a you know federal uh, Canadian senator and a Pentecostal minister, as you pointed out, someone who is a leader in 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 his community, uh, and so therefore someone that people look to for direction and guidance, and so therefore a very uh, uh, powerful position from which to. Uh, uh, persuade a a, a young uh, a, a young underage woman to uh, you know to get into a physical relationship. Michael Gagan is my guest, political analyst, joining us from Victoria with his take on this scandal surrounding Senator Don Meredith, a Toronto area senator who is under fire, and a lot of colleagues in the Senate say he should do the right thing and fall on his sword and resign. So far, he has not done that. It all involves a relationship he had with a young girl, sexual relationship, and she was 16 at the time. So why do you think Canadians should care about this story, Michael? Why is it important? Because for some of us, you know, the Senate seems so very far away. It's unelected. We don't really hear about it very much. Uh, it's kind of remote. Yeah, I mean, the Senate is, uh, it's, it's, it's been called many things. It's been called a taskless thanks and and of course, you know, over the years, you've had various people appointed for various reasons. Many instances, you know, this was uh, the government of the day appointed someone who was, you know, very good at fundraising for them or had done other things that they were appreciative of. And, and uh, or, you know, you had an MP step aside so they could bring in someone else and they reward them with a Senate appointment. So there isn't. There isn't exactly a great history in terms of, uh, of terms of how we get there, and, and because of our constitutional logjam, it's virtually impossible to reform the Senate. Because if we have an elected Senate, the Senate has a lot of power constitutionally, but it's power that that generally isn't utilized very often because there is no elected mandate. If you had an elected mandate, then overnight the Senate would become very powerful, and that's why people are you know, would be concerned about, well, how many senators does Quebec have versus Ontario versus Western Canada versus Atlantic Canada? And that's why we're in this logjam. So while we're in this situation and these people are being appointed, let's ensure that the people we're appointing are not only representative of our country, but let's also ensure, you know, in terms of, you know, regions and ethnicities and, 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 and other demographics, but let's also make sure that, that, that they're holding to a standard that's at least good or if not better than the average Canadian. And and I think the average Canadian would certainly be uh, appalled at someone conducting themselves in this manner. You mentioned the issue of moral failing. I just want to dig into that a little deeper because I think about my situation, your situation, people listening. I mean, we would not be able to do this sort of thing and keep our jobs, let alone a job that is funded by Canadian taxpayers in which, you know, again, there is a responsibility and accountability when you are a sitting senator uh, to the Canadian population. Absolutely right. And, and I, I believe the senator is also married. So I'm not sure what's happening in terms of his marital status. But, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you're exactly right. If anyone conducting themselves in so irresponsible a manner, because uh, that's the other thing, is, is it, it, it points to a, a, a level of recklessness that's, uh, that's a little bit alarming, right? Because as you pointed out, if, if, if anyone did this in any kind of regular private sector job, they'd probably find themselves dismissed. I'd be, I'd be kind of surprised if they weren't. 
Now, the Senate has a couple of options here. I mentioned full expulsion, and that's the extreme option, the nuclear option. We know over the next couple of days, the senator himself has a right to respond, and we've heard from his lawyer that he plans to do that. Then there is a three-week period in which the Senate will have to decide and have a debate. It could push it to the end of May or early June. Some senators, Michael, have said, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable with expelling Don Meredith because of the precedent it sets. We've never done this before. It's very extreme. And does that mean that all sorts of other senators could come under fire for less egregious issues? First of all, I think the precedent needs to be set. I think it, there needs to be something that, yes, there is behavior that's beyond, beyond the pale, even if it isn't in the criminal code. It's basic moral code of conduct and judgment and whatnot. And yeah, you're, you're, you're gone. So I don't mind this precedent being set. However, in terms of senators that may be concerned that this will somehow lead to some kind of witch hunt for, you know, every senator that's had a parking ticket or what have you, I, first of all, I think that's a bit of a, you know, a straw man argument. Uh, second of all, you have the situation where you had a recommendation from a Senate committee. One final thing. Michael Gagan is my guest, joining us from Victoria, political analyst. And we're talking about this scandal involving a Canadian senator, Don Meredith, involved in a sex scandal. He's in his early 50s. The woman in question was under 18 at the time. He's admitted it. He's apologized. The Senate is recommending he be expelled. The Senate, bigger picture, Michael, has had a lot of issues over the last couple of years. They have been accused of being out of touch in an ivory tower. We saw what happened with Mike Duffy and with Pamela Wallen and with Patrick Brezzo. These other senators arguably behaving badly. Now we have Senator Don Meredith. Do you get a sense that they're finally kind of getting it, the need to act more quickly, to be more accountable, and to use a bit more common sense in how they handle these issues? I think they do, because I think what they're, they're getting a sense of is, is that there's a growing political appetite for simply abolishing the Senate, uh, you know, particularly while we're in this constitutional logjam. Uh, and so I think, uh, I think those that are, that are wise are saying, yeah, we better, we better uh, pull up our socks and bring a bit more uh, moral uh, perspective to, to the way we're conducting ourselves. Otherwise, this whole institution will be gone and we'll be like, uh, as far as I know, pretty much every province in Canada where, you know, you have a unicameral legislature. There is no, you know, provincial Senate. It's just, you know, you just have the provincial parliaments. And we could easily do that federally where you just have the House of Commons and that's it. So I, I think for those who want to preserve the institution of the Senate, I think it's a smart move uh, moving to expel, uh, expel Don Meredith. Michael Gagan, political analyst, joining us from Victoria and B.C. All right, we'll get back to the program in a moment, but here's a way for you to contact us. You can email us, viewpoints at bellmedia.ca, viewpoints at bellmedia.ca, and you can connect with me personally on social media. Find me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle for both is at ToddCTV. Oh, here's a question for you. Have you ever had your shoes shined or walked by a shoe shine stand and watched what they are doing? It seems wonderfully retro nowadays, doesn't it? A throwback to a different time. The shoe shine world, though, is a fascinating one, and it is global. There are shiners in just about every country around the world. This weekend, we're featuring here on Viewpoints some of the best new Canadian documentaries just released this spring, and that includes the film Shiners by Montreal director Stacey Tenenbaum. She's joining us on the line. Stacy. thanks for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. Very cool film. Where did your inspiration to make it come from? Well, I love getting my shoe shined, always have, uh, and through the years I'd talk with my shoe shiners, so I knew they were great, interesting characters. 
Um, and the biggest reason that I wanted to do the film was because um, I thought it was a great job, and, and I realized that there was a lot of prejudice that people had uh, about shoe shiners and preconceived notions about the type of people who do shoe shine. So I kind of wanted to um, talk to the shiners themselves and see why they did the job, and, and also if they liked doing it, and sort of their impressions of the work. When you say prejudice, what do you mean? Uh, people, I mean, I've had people be like, uh, you know, those poor shoe shiners, they can't do anything else, they must be uneducated, uh, you know, th- there's been a lot of that. Um, other people are like, I wouldn't want to be at somebody's feet, it's degrading. So there are all these kind of ideas that are wrapped up in a shoe shine. I mean, of course, you know, there's the person that's in a chair a little bit higher above this person down low, so I wanted to look also at the class issues that were involved with shoe shining. It is really interesting when you think about it, because I'll give you an example. You know, I sometimes get my shoe shine, but I too go through this in my mind. It's often at an airport when I'm traveling and I'm, I'm sort of thinking, gosh, are people looking at me and thinking I'm a snob or I'm this or I'm that? Should I feel yeah. bad? How much of a tip do I give? You know, and then you talk to these shiners and they've got fascinating stories and there's actually, you know, it's not a question of being uneducated or anything like that. Far from it. Yeah, I, I think that that is the biggest thing. People feel uncomfortable in that chair. And, and what I tell people is, like, you know, you're going to deprive someone of their livelihood just to make yourself feel better. I mean, they're there. They're offering a service. Um, and I think, you know, it's the customer who, customer who makes the shoe shine demeaning in the end. I mean, it, it's your choice as a customer. Do you talk to your shoe shiner? Do you tip your shoe shiner? Or do you just ignore them and pretend that they have nothing to give to the world. Um, so that was also something I wanted to educate potentially the, the public about, you know, that, that they can talk to their shoe shiners and that there are interesting people out there to talk to and that they shouldn't feel uncomfortable getting a shoe shine because it feels great. We're talking to Stacey Tenenbaum, Montreal director of the new documentary Shiners, which is all about the shoe shine industry and, of course, the people who make it up. It truly is global, isn't it, Stacey? Although, depending on the country, there are different impressions about what it means to be a shoe shiner. Yeah, that's why I kind of wanted to travel with the film. That, that was my idea since the very beginning, was to do a day in the life of shoe shiners in different cities and to show how different the job can be. So, like, you know, from the lowest of the low in Bolivia to, the, the you know, a shoe shiner in a suit that's very elegant in Tokyo. So uh, I wanted to show what, what the profession could be and to give a little bit of hope as well. The other thing I want to ask you about is whether it is a disappearing art, because sometimes it's hard to find a shoe shine stand nowadays. It really is, and it's a shame. I'm very upset about that. Um, no, I, I, it depends on the on the city. I think definitely, you know, here in Canada, it seems to be going away. You're, you're only finding shoe shiners in you know uh, train stations and airports. Um, I did feature a shoe shiner from Toronto. Uh, who actually is working in a barber shop. And that, that was the reason I wanted to show him. Well, there were many reasons why I wanted to include him in the film. But, um, I wanted to show that there might be some kind of comeback to those, you know, shoe shining. Like there's this whole, you know, madman and hipster kind of barber shop trend that's looking back to an era where things were made by hand and things were taken care of and shoe shines were a big part of that. So hopefully there is a resurgence as well. 
It is true because you see people nowadays with this uh, this real uh, enjoyment of authentic experiences, whether it's getting your you know yourself shaved by a barber or going to an authentic barber shop, or as you're saying, perhaps getting your shoes shined. It is still very much a male profession, isn't it? Uh, well, I have a few female uh, shoe shiners in the film, uh, so I, I mean, there's also this perception that it's me- only men are getting their shoe shined. Yes. And, uh, I would definitely like to encourage women to get their shoes shine. I mean, we wear nice, big, long leather boots in the winter. And, uh, I mean, shoe shining just extends the life of your footwear. So if you're spending a lot of shoes on your, a lot of money on your shoes, whether you're a man or a woman, then you should be getting shoe shine. I was doing a little bit of research before bringing you on, and this industry seems to go back about 200 years or so. The first uh, shoe shiners were in the UK or, or France, the first sort of commercialization of actually yeah. paying to have your shoes shined. What's the reaction been, Stacy, to this film, Shiners? Uh, well, it's funny you say that because in London they're like, oh, isn't that Charles Dickens kind of stuff? <laughs> <laughs> they really, I actually did get that comment. Uh, so like I said, people have a lot of preconceived notions about it. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, that doesn't even happen anymore. Are people still shoe shiners? Um, so there, there's a lot of misconceptions out there and hopefully this film will help to clear some of them up. You must have met some really fascinating characters too, putting it together, didn't you? I mean, like I said, shoe shiners are—they they deal with the public day in, day out, right? So they're—they're they're used to talking to people. They're usually fairly interesting folk, and they've seen just about everything, right? So uh, yeah, you can meet some interesting characters if you uh, talk to your shoe shiner. The name of the film we're talking about here on Viewpoints, Shiners. You can get more information. ShinersDocumentary.com is the website. ShinersDocumentary.com getting a lot of buzz. You're listening to Viewpoints, the podcast on iTunes. Smart radio covering top stories of the week, plus fun radio to get you talking. You'll find it all right here. Now, let's get back to the show. And you're listening to Viewpoints. Todd Vanderheaten here with you. Prom sucks, or at least that's what some people think. Prom season is upon us, and for kids of a certain age, it's a rite of passage from high school to the next phase in their lives. And we humans, we love our rituals, don't we, after all? But here's the thing. Proms can also mean so much pressure from who to go with to what to wear to how much to spend. It's all kind of silly and a little frivolous when those of us who've been through it way, way back look back and say, what the heck did we even bother with all that for? My own niece in Vancouver is going through this, and my sister agreed to host a big year-end party at her house. Full disclosure, I had a pretty bad prom experience way back when, and kind of a bad high school experience overall, so I'm a little bit jaded and cynical when it comes to the whole thing, but... Look around you, you'll start to see prom events going on here and there and all sorts of kids getting ready to say goodbye to one phase of their lives. So, I want to bring in my guest who's standing by in Boulder, Colorado, Liz Meyer. She's a gender studies professor at the University of Colorado, and she's with us right now. Liz, good to have you on the show. It's great to talk with you, Todd. So, what do you think? Do proms suck or not? Oh, when I think of proms, I just think about a night of bad judgment and unmet expectations. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like life, right? (laughs) But it's all amplified, like with this buildup of expectations and hope and planning and spending way too much money that most kids and families do not have to rise to some impossible ideal of beauty or heterosexuality. And then so many kids end up 
just feeling hurt and left out and unmet and damaged because people are like, oh, it's the night to lose your virginity. Oh, it's your night to get drunk. Oh, it's your night to do this. And it's just like people who normally make good decisions get forced into this really bad decision-making moment. <laughs> the prom originally is named the promenade dance, as you know. And, and, and I'm curious, you mentioned something there a moment ago. I mean, your area of expertise is gender studies. How gendered is prom? Because, you know, you've got the prom queen and the prom king. And it seems to me that uh, it's a little bit of a throwback in that way, too, Liz, if for 2017. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the prom is so gendered, so classed, so raced. It is just this pinnacle of white, upper-class elitism, because that's where it came from. The promenade was this history of debutante balls of wealthy elite families being able to present their daughters for proper marriageability. I mean, and so this is something that we want our children to be groomed for and aspire to. I mean, any kind of formal event like maximizes all the expectations for femininity and masculinity and heterosexuality. So kids who are queer or kids who are gender nonconforming or kids who just don't feel comfortable yet with their sexuality or their gender expression, this is the moment where it all gets put under a magnifying glass with a spotlight. And if you fail to to produce appropriate dress or tux or date, then it's just going to be a disaster. And that causes so much anxiety for so many kids, and it just should just be a fun get-together. But there's just so much buildup. I don't, I don't ever think that's really possible. There are also, of course, all sorts of body image issues that come into play as well surrounding prom, particularly for the girls. Yes, and it's really gotten extreme in some schools here in the States. I don't know if it's happening much in Canada, but schools are publishing like 22-page dress codes, and it's primarily aimed at the young women. And some schools are actually asking girls to take photos of themselves in their gowns to make sure that it's acceptable. So a girl in one gown of a certain body type, if she's in a different gown with a different body type, or even the same gown, like if you have too much cleavage or too much back or whatever it might be, according to the guidelines of appropriateness of that school administrator, your dress might be deemed inappropriate after you just spent $500 on it or whatever. And it's just, it's ridiculous because it's, it's just not a place for fun because the kids aren't being allowed to be who they are. It's just a place of regulation and policing. We're talking to Liz Meyer on the line in Boulder, Colorado. She's a gender studies prof at the University of Colorado. We're talking about whether or not prom sucks, and there is a lot of pressure and anxiety. And Liz, I was saying at the beginning my own experience. So I was at an all-boys private school when I was in high school, and you know, a lot of the girls from some of the female private schools wanted to get an invite to our prom. And so I was not exactly popular with the ladies, and all of a sudden <laughs> there were women who were young girls who were trying to get me as their date. And it was a very strange sort of situation because I didn't even really know the girl that eventually came with me. And as soon as she got in, she was off with her friends and off with other guys. So I kind of felt a little bit used and exploited by the whole situation. Nowadays, I know there are some kids who say, and we would never have thought of this back in the well late 80s, early 90s when I went to prom. They just don't go. They say, you know what, that is not for me. I am not going to, uh, you know, try to shoehorn myself into that kind of construct. And I'm going to have either an anti-prom or I am not going to prom or I'm going to go alone to prom and be proud to go alone to prom. Interesting, right? I guess now there's a lot of iterations that were completely not on the table 10, 20 years ago. Absolutely, and that just shows you the creativity and strength of youth. 
And absolutely, there's people who are creating queer proms, anti-proms. They're going with friends intentionally because they don't want the unmet expectations. They don't want the buildup of bad judgment. And I got to tell you, I was that 10th grade girl that pursued a senior date that I was not really interested in and totally ditched him at the prom and felt bad for it for decades. I still feel like I have to apologize to him every time I see him because it was such a poor thing for me to do. And, you know, some proms actually make it cheaper for kids to come as couples. And so it it really they're trying to encourage people to come as a heterosexual couple because then they actually vet the date. Like, are you a student at this school? If not, have you met our guidelines? Is it a as a, a, a heterosexual date or not, you know? And there's a lot of that filtering that going goes on. And so I'm so glad when I hear of kids just being like, you know what, we're not going to be part of participating in this because it's not going to be fun. It's not what we want to be a part of. So we're going to go do this other thing. And, you know, and I really applaud the youth who have the strength and the self-awareness to be able to do something like that. It always gets back to this notion in my mind. And again, full disclosure, you know, I, I had a horrible high school experience, but that prom was really created for the cool kids. Um, and the kind of quasi-cool kids. But if you weren't part of that group, if you weren't in the in-crowd or sort of in-crowd adjacent, really prom was another reminder of just how difficult high school could be. It was almost like all of those years kind of crammed into one night. And again, this notion, you touched on it a moment ago, of all these expectations, it's supposed to be something, it's supposed to be a rite of passage, and yet it kind of isn't really. No, and, you know, and that's been sort of commemorated in film over the years, starting all the way from, like, Stephen King's Carrie of, like, the poor kids or the working class kids or the fat kids or the queer kids or, you know, that just don't ever kind of fit into the modes of popularity or coolness at that school. And so it's just, it just goes back to the roots of prom. It's about hierarchy. It's about exclusion. It's about celebrating the ideal. And by having an ideal, you need to have kind of the counterpart, which is, oh, the people who have failed at popularity, because who else is going to sit there and applaud the prom king and queen if not the people who aren't the prom king and queen? You need an audience. You need subjects, if you will. And so it's really, it, it hurts me that that's what this is all built upon, and that's what continues to get repeated and repeated over and over again. But there are some schools that have actually gone to a gender-neutral prom court and allowing there to just to be prom royalty. So they're trying to queer that up a little bit, which is encouraging because then it allows students of different gender expressions or non-binary or trans kids to, to really feel like their identities and their experiences are celebrated. And it's really cool when you see the news story of the transgender prom queen or the prom court that has the non-binary or trans kids on it because that means they have been seen as central to the experience of the lives of those students in that school. So in some ways, it can disrupt and challenge if the community has really thought to think about it differently. Liz Myers is my guest. She is a gender studies prof at the University of Colorado, joining us this weekend from Boulder, Colorado. You know, I, I do take some solace in this notion, Liz, that sometimes the freaks and the geeks and the losers in high school, and I was definitely one of them, uh, you know, end up uh, not being that in, you know, when they get older. And sometimes the prom king and queen... <laughs> <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. They don't necessarily succeed, as some people might think they will, you know, based on their high school record. In other words, it's a whole different ball game once you get out of high school. 
Absolutely, and that's kind of what the whole It Gets Better project was built around, is the fact that high school is this microcosm of tiny, narrow experiences and people and opportunities that many people have been forced to endure for 10 to 12 years of their life, and that, unfortunately, the things that have made people socially successful in high school doesn't necessarily set you up to be successful in the broader playing field of life, whether it be academically or economically or creatively, what have you, that the people who don't fit in in high school oftentimes are the most innovative, creative, um, taking on the most important challenges in our world. And it's just hard to have to tell kids, like, just hang in there. It's going to be better, and you're going to make a difference, and you'll laugh, you know, when you look back on this. But unfortunately, it seems like, you know, at most comprehensive high schools, that still plays out. Liz Myers joining us from Boulder, Colorado. She is a professor of gender studies at the University of Colorado. This is Viewpoints. Great guests and great conversations. From politics to pop culture, from technology to geek culture, we do smart radio and fun radio right here. Tune in every week to the iTunes podcast for the best segments from our nationally syndicated weekend radio show. And welcome back to Viewpoints, our final segment this weekend. Comic books are big business these days, thanks, of course, to a lot of Hollywood magic. Big-budget films have turned obscure superheroes into A-list ticket draws at the box office. Ten years ago, think about this, not many people outside of the world of geeks knew who Iron Man was or who the Avengers were. Nowadays, the superhero genre films has changed all that. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 hitting theaters this weekend, just another example. What it's helped to do is shore up the old retro comic book industry, which has had a few near-death experiences since the late 1990s. This weekend is Free Comic Book Day, where comic book stores across Canada and the States open their doors and offer a sampling of some comics to generate new readers and buzz for the industry, an industry which goes back almost a 100 years. And with that in mind, I wanted to get my final guest on Viewpoints this weekend, Scott Sawyer. He's a Canadian comic book creator. He just came out with number two of his superhero comic book. It's called North, and it's about Canadian superheroes. This is a crazy industry to be in, and who better than an independent artist and creator to give us his take? Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Oh, so happy to be here. How long have you been a comic book fan? Uh, for as long as I can remember. Um, yeah, I, it was. I think Archie books might have been my gateway, but uh, I remember going to the little uh, uh, spinster racket. Uh, uh, shelf at the pharmacy uh, downtown where I used to go and pick up my comics before I even knew there was such a thing as a comic book store. There was that little <laughs> spinner rack, and of it course. was the most exciting time of my day. And so when did you decide that you actually wanted to create your own comic? Uh, it was something I had always wanted to do, uh, but I think that my path was... Uh, I, I didn't know that it was really a feasible option. I think when uh, when I moved to Toronto, I started to get the sense that it was an actual thing that people, real people, were doing, not just in some faraway land, but uh, the move from Sudbury to Toronto opened my eyes uh, in terms of the arts and what kind of career path might be available. Uh, it was uh, always an idea that I wanted to do, I guess, throw my hat in the ring and, and uh, kind of put a little bit more Canadiana in the comic books that uh, we grew up with because it was sorely lacking in my, in my childhood. There was only one book uh, Captain Canuck, I believe, and I didn't really know of any others. So I just wanted to uh, get, take a shot at telling a story from you know, the medium that we love and the mythology that we grew up with, but with the Canadiana kind of twist. So, 
We're talking to Scott Sawyer on the line in Toronto, originally from Sudbury. He's the creator of the comic book North, which is a Canadian group of superheroes, issue number two just coming out. He's an independent creator, and we're talking to him because this weekend is free comic book day. So comic book stores across Canada are opening their doors to people to come in and get free comic books just to get a sense of what this industry is all about. Of course, Hollywood has turned it into a billion-dollar industry, but it's all based on those comic book characters. We know, Scott, as comic book fans, that Marvel in D.C., the big juggernauts here dominate this industry, but there are other smaller companies. You know, there's Valiant and there's Dark Horse and there's Dynamite, these smaller comic book companies. There's lots of room out there. For yourself as an independent creator, how difficult is it to get traction? Uh, you know, do you, you know, connect with readers and, and how do you do that? Uh, you know, we don't have the luxury of uh, having the money to uh, blast hundreds of thousands of comics out there. So what we do is uh, try to spread uh, the word as best we can, uh, do public signings, uh, you know, launches for each issue, uh, try to get out to the conventions and talk to as many people as we can and hope that someone, you know, this day and age, uh, it's very easy to spread the word even internationally. Um, you know, even even this conversation with you is a result of a conversation I had with another. So it's it's uh, you know we're doing the best we can without the big company dollars behind us, or even the smaller company dollars. We're we're tiny. Uh, if if this art speaks to people, if this story speaks to people, then uh, then that will do the work for us. And uh, I'm just just really glad to be doing it at all. I'm a big fan of the original one because I read number one and I just picked up number two. And this goes back to when I was a kid because Marvel had a superhero team called Alpha Flight, which was a group of Canadian superheroes. And I always loved this notion and had, you know, it was created by John Byrne, who himself was Canadian and had a number of different runs over the years. And I always liked this idea of sort of superheroes, which are kind of an American idea, if you think about it, but then sort of a Canadian alternate version of it. And it was really quite fascinating to me. Where do you guys get your your funding? Because I know that uh, you are doing some crowdfunding as well, right? Yeah, the, you know what? Uh, at, uh, number one and two uh, were made possible by a very successful Kickstarter campaign uh, that almost doubled our uh, our goal. Uh, number one was uh, was achieved in eight days, and the budget for number two, at least in a digital format, was also reached by the end of the campaign. Uh, we just had to then depend on the sales to raise enough money to actually do a physical print of number two. Uh, so, um, you know, right now uh, we are still depending on the sales of one and two to make number three possible. And there's 13 issues in total for Ooh. the volume one story arc. Uh, they're all written. Uh, three of them are, are drawn. So we are now looking to raise enough to color and letter the already drawn third issue. The website is norththecomic.ca, correct? Yes, sir. Or.com, yeah. Either or. Or. com. How secure do you think, bigger picture, this industry actually is? I mean, this is Free Comic Book Day weekend. Uh, what do you think? You know, you're involved in it in your own capacity. What, what's your gut telling you? I think it changes, but it survives. I think it's uh, even, even the fact that we met in a comic shop, uh, you know, full of, of print issues and, and trade paperbacks shows that, you know, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, it may shift and change, and the digital uh, age has, uh, of course, had its influence on the industry as well. Uh, and I've tried to acknowledge uh, that trend and given us every, every opportunity to succeed uh, or be found or discovered by, uh, by fans from any of the generations uh, 
you know, ours or the younger ones who know nothing but digital format. So uh, I think that the love of this medium uh, will ensure its future. Scott Sawyer joining us on the line. The name of his book is North. You can check it out, norththecomic.com or norththecomic.ca. And that's going to do it for us today here on the show. Thanks for listening to Viewpoints on iTunes. I'm Todd Vander Hayden. Our show producers, Matt Gilmore, Fernando Gelso, Tina Lullum, and Dave Simon. You can connect with me on social media on Instagram and Twitter. Same handle for both at Todd CTV. And you can catch me weekdays on television on CTV News Channel, which is CTV's 24-hour breaking news cable channel, 2 to 5 Eastern, 11 to 2 Pacific. We'll be back here again soon with more Viewpoints. And until then, take care of yourself. 